Today's conversation is brought to you by Wesley Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, try out the Wesley Seminary podcast. Wesley Seminary posts new episodes weekly with guests like Pete Scazzera, Tara Beth Leach, Derwin Gray, and Sandra Wheeler covering topics such as leadership, preaching, miracles, and cross-cultural relationships. Wesley Seminary has over 200 episodes for you to check out. Just search Wesley Seminary Podcast wherever you listen. One of the big mistakes I think Christians make, especially in our civic engagement, is we don't want to stand within the tension of love and truth. We don't want to stand within the tension of social justice and moral order. We want to just jump to one side or the other, number one, because our our ideological tribes try to force us to do that. Uh, but it's easier. It's, it's a lot more uh, comfortable to say, you know what, I'm going to give up all these biblical convictions. I'm just going to focus on the compassion. Or I'm not going to be so worried about the compassion because that means I may have to sacrifice some things and make some admissions. I'm just going to focus on the conviction. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Justin Gibney, attorney and political strategist who models so well how to speak truth and embody empathy toward others across complex topics in divided contexts. Here's our conversation. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So last year, you spoke at our annual Christian Student Leadership Conference, and it was um, soon after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was obvious and painful representation of the polarization in our country. And um, issue after issue, we continue to see this kind of polarization, whether it's abortion or LGBTQ rights, gun control, racism, you name it. Our nation is pretty clear dividing lines and as you reflect over the past year, and maybe in particular the past couple of months, how would you assess where we've been and how far or how little we've come along? Yeah, it's tough because when we saw a lot of racialized violence kind of early during the pandemic, I felt like people were Christians were coming together. Um, the the AN campaign even even had a churches helping churches. Uh, drive where we raise, and, and and I appreciate the National Association of Evangelicals being a part of that, where we raise a lot of money for uh, churches. And you just saw the church come together ar- around this racialized violence and all, and all that stuff. And then it seems with January 6th and, and other things that we actually took a step back. Uh, and, th- and that's always painful. Um, you, you see the rise of the conversation about CRT and Christians not really talking together about it, but speaking you know, past each other in, in that regard. And so I would say, unfortunately, in some ways, it seems like we took a step back after all, all that was going on. Mm. So you refer to the AND campaign, you co-founded the AND campaign. It's, it's a Christian civic organization asserting the compassion and conviction of the gospel that needs to be in the public square. What, what actually led you to uh, found the AND campaign? And what do you hope to accomplish yeah, so I've been a political operative in Atlanta for over a decade. And, and as I was running campaigns and, and just working, you know, 
uh, helping people think through their strategy and all that, I began to see that a lot of Christians who were entering politics felt like they had to push their convictions aside. So I was in a very progressive space and that was happening. But I also was working with some friends who were in more conservative spaces during the time of the Tea Party. And they were feeling like they couldn't be as compassionate as they wanted to be. So there was this what I call a false dichotomy in our political landscape, where uh, in order to care about people and social justice, some folks felt like they had to go all the way to the left in order to care about um, moral order and moral issues. Some folks felt like they had to go all the way to the right. But there was something missing in both of those, because when I looked at the gospel, I didn't see love and truth in conflict. I didn't see compassion and conviction in conflict or social justice and moral order in conflict. I saw them coming together. Uh, and so the and campaign basically says we're not going to choose between love and truth. We're not going to choose between justice and righteousness. We're going to have both. It's an and rather than an or conversation. And, and so that's what got me into it. Something had to change. And I just saw a lot of young Christians, especially didn't seem to have a clear framework on how to be faithful in politics. The only frameworks they had was the left, what was provided by the left and the right. Wow. That's um, a beautiful vision. Seems awfully difficult to pull off. And followers of Jesus are called to do not only the difficult, but the things that seem impossible. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. But what does it practically look like to be a peacemaker? What does it look like to hold love and truth together when it comes to issues like abortion or LGBTQ rights? Is there peace to be made? And practically, how do we see some of this advance? It's not easy. Uh, and, and Dr. Kim, the first thing that I tell people they need to do is sometimes reframe issues. If we simply view issues through the framework of progressives or conservatives, we're bound to get a lot of the answers wrong because it is possible to be given two wrong answers. Right. So I can ask you a question where there really isn't a right answer. It's two wrong answers. And if we assume that one of those answers is right, then we're in trouble. But I think Christians have to bring all these issues uh, through what I would call biblical scrutiny. We have to say, first and foremost, what does doctrine have to say about this issue, right? Where, where, where does the Bible say I need to say, and where's the truth in this, in this conversation? But at the same time, the Bible isn't just a treatise of black letter law. We also need to say, what does compassion have to say? Uh, what, what, how would Jesus and the gospel um, have me react to someone who may be hurting? And so it's not as simple as, this is right or that is wrong. That's part of the conversation. But how do I show compassion? And when we start to reframe issues through that lens, through that, that gospel lens, I think we can come to better conclusions than we would if we just keep the very simple and I think lazy progressive and conservative uh, frameworks. Hmm. There's so much that I want to unpack in what you just said, um, both in terms of the biblical principles that you've alluded to, and of course, the uh, um, posture of compassion that you're holding up. But I, I want to uh, begin by um, following up on the comment that two wrongs can be given. Um, so what are some of the wrongs? What are some of the self-deceptions that maybe conservatives and progressives um, uh, tell themselves and others uh, perhaps to serve their own purpose or agenda or just as a function of looking at the issue too narrowly or ideologically? Yeah, I think the, the first place where we start is that this is just a conversation of good versus evil, whereas if I'm conservative, then we're getting it right, we're good, and they're evil. And that's 
a pretty flat way of looking at reality. I think that's a pretty unbiblical way of looking at reality because we're all broken, which doesn't mean that one side isn't more right or wrong than the other. But it does mean that there's a critique that needs to be made of, of both sides. Uh, one thing that I always say is if I have uh, gangrene in my left leg and my right leg, just because it's uh, gone further in my right leg doesn't need, mean I don't need to do anything about my left leg because they'll both kill me. Uh, and I think that's how we need to think about politics rather than one side is all right and one side is all wrong. But if you want to apply it to an issue uh, today, you can take the LGBTQ issue. Um, I think the Bible speaks very clearly on that issue. I think the historic Christian sexual ethic is right. Um, and I think we can see that in, in a lot of practical ways, too. Uh, but the idea, again, of treating it like a legal treatise and say, well, they're wrong if they, you know, if they don't um, if, if they don't uphold that perfectly uh, and saying that's it. Right. We just oppose them. I think it's wrong. What's also wrong is is saying, you know what? Christians have handled this wrong in the past. I'm compassionate. Now I'm just going to affirm, you know, whatever someone brings me or whatever someone says they feel. That's also wrong. So those, that's an instance of two wrong answers, whereas we can uphold the Christian sexual ethic and go out of our way, do whatever we can to make sure that we're there for people in that community in a real way, not just, you know, uh, love the, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, but actually sacrificing to make sure that we're, um, to make sure that we're supporting people and not treating them as outsiders, um, especially when we need to be evangelizing and having deeper conversations on that. Hmm. So you've given us uh, one kind of clear articulation of a, a biblical principle that surrounds the human ethics, you know, that there's clarity on that. Um, are there broader biblical principles that help guide uh, you in your work and your perception of the place of Christianity and faith in the public square? What are some kind of broad biblical principles that you can give to us? I mean, one place that we go with the AND campaign, we go to Ephesians 4, uh, 14 through 15, uh, where uh, Paul is talking to the church of Ephesus, the persevering church, and he was talking to them about maturity. And then he, he says, you know, the mature Christian is able to basically, he says, the mature Christian is able to speak the truth in love. And one of the broad kind of principles we have that we follow in the end campaign is Christians have to be able to stand with intentions. One of the big mistakes I think Christians make, especially in our civic engagement, is we don't want to stand within the tension of love and truth. We don't want to stand within the tension of social justice and moral order. We want to just jump to one side or the other, number one, because our, our ideological tribes try to force us to do that. Uh, but it's easier. It's, it's a lot more uh, comfortable to say, you know what, I'm going to give up all these biblical convictions. I'm just going to focus on the compassion. Or I'm not going to be so worried about the compassion because that means I may have to sacrifice some things and it makes some admissions. I'm just going to focus on the conviction. But if we look at Jesus Christ and how he engaged people, um, he didn't coddle people. He didn't, you know, lie to them. He told them the truth, but he also gave them, said there, you know, there's hope. There's, you know, there's something better for you within this truth and showed people compassion, met them where they were at. And you see throughout the gospel, people being helped and loved in ways that were foreign uh, to that time. And I think Christians have to do, have to make sure that we're doing the same. Yeah, makes me think of the the scene of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, and he says, "I, I you know, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more." I mean, what do we do with that? You know, yeah. holding those things together. And it's he had so to say profound. sin no more because it wasn't just external bondage she was in; there was an internal bondage. So he could have got her out of there, and that internal bondage would have kept kept her 
uh, in the same situation. Mm, mm. So what does it look like for uh, the church to confront, you know, these lies, these kind of wrong ways of thinking? Um, and, you know, that's that's awfully difficult in this moment. Um, any advice for us? I think it starts with making sure that we're not conflating theology and ideology. Um, a lot of people cannot tell you the difference. You know, I believe I'm conservative in my theology. That doesn't mean that I'm always going to be conservative in my ideology. And a lot of people can't tell you where one ends and the other begins. Right. And, and we have to make sure. And that's not just for uh, conservatives. That's for progressive people who are more ideologically progressive as well. Uh, these are different things. And the theology has to control the ideology and not the other way around. I can't tell you how many Christians I know that once they got deep, more deeply involved in politics, their theology was impacted by their partisanship. Um, and, and, and your partisanship should never be the master of your social action, but certainly, certainly not the master of your theology. Uh, so that's one thing that Christians really have to watch out for, not just going along with the narrative that they may be getting from folks in their ideological tribe, but challenging those narratives and, and digging a little deeper to get to the truth of what's going on. So as we try to hold these tensions together, and as we also want to make sure that we prioritize well, you know, that the theology drives um, and is master of our um, ideological commitments, you know, as Christians, was, we engage in the public square on difficult issues. Um, we engage with neighbors, coworkers, uh, people within the church, outside of the church, between churches. Um, do you find that your approach or posture changes depending on the context, and whether in your personal relationship, your advocacy, and and how does it change? And again, what are some of the the principles that help help us think through these issues? Yeah, no, that's good. The principles don't change, but we always have to be aware of context, and you see this even with. Uh, a Paul, when he goes into the Agra in, in Acts 17, he knows he's around these great rhetoricians and philosophers, and he speaks to them in that way. He uses the the uh, Socratic method and things of that nature because he's meeting these people where they're at so he can understand that. So, yes, if I'm speaking to a group that's primarily uh, more progressive, my principles are the same. I'm going to approach it in a different way. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I may start from a different point, but the conclusion will be the same and the same if I go to a, a different space. Uh, I don't think, and you, you don't want to go to where it's disingenuous or you're changing, you know, your message, but sometimes you have to speak to certain people in certain ways so that they understand and you can create a connection and say, here's where we all have to get at the end of the day. So yes, for a Christian to go into a space and not understand the context and not take the time and have the diligence to understand how to reach that group, I think is not you know, it's not going about our father's business in the way that we should. Mm. And speaking of groups, um, you know, are there particular dynamics in the African-American church in communities? And it's not a monolith. So I, I specifically ask in terms of the dynamics um, and, and how do these uh, communities, African-American communities and its diversity also relate to what we see in broader America? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that's, that's a good question, because what we're seeing in broad America and what we've been seeing for a while is kind of this culture war. Right. And the culture war has primarily even by, you know, even by the um, from the perspective of, of the guy who came up with who coined the term culture war has been a fight between uh, white progressives and white conservatives. 
And so and so while it's been consequential for the rest of us, we haven't really controlled the messaging or the two sides. And so I think for African-Americans, we see ourselves not fitting many African-Americans. Again, it's not a, a, a monolith, but African-Americans coming from the uh, the primary kind of black ecclesial tradition, as Dr. Esau Macaulay would say, uh, find ourselves not fitting properly on either side. Right. Understanding the importance of justice, uh, having this exodus motif that's that's always kind of right there in front of us and, and very important to us and not really seeing that fully appreciated sometimes when it comes to kind of the white evangelical conservative tradition. But at the same time, understanding and, ha- you know, the importance of moral order, being in communities where there's not a whole, you know, sometimes a not a lot of moral order because of poverty and other things and saying, no, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We do have a high value of family and things of those, that nature and not seeing that completely valued on the left, and even sometimes kind of uh, uh, pushed aside, or, 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 or um, I, I don't know if I want to say scorned, but something that just, you just don't um, put a lot of value or priority behind. Uh, and so, what the AND campaign has tried to do, coming from that Black ecclesial tradition, is find a way to challenge both sides and, and show where that tradition can actually help within the conversation. I think we all have something to learn from each other. Uh, and if we're not really willing to open up and have real conversations, then we'll miss something that each tradition can bring uh, to the discourse. In what ways has this been most fruitful? Where have you seen, I mean, you know, so much of the discussion has been about what's not working, you know, what's broken in our country, what's broken in the church or in evangelicalism. And yet God, God certainly is not broken. God is on the move. And so, Justin, what 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 have you seen in terms of actual fruitfulness as you've seen these African-American communities and traditions and this robust theology you're describing engage in broader conversations? One place that I, I've seen a big impact is on colleges, on Christian campuses um, nationwide. Uh, a lot of young Christ, college age Christians are looking for a concept of justice to engage. And they can either get that concept from the world, and we know the problems with them getting that from secular society, or they can be provided the true justice um, conception from a biblical standpoint. And I think the AND campaign has helped them see that you can be orthodox and care about justice issues. And that means that you have to go about it a certain way. But a lot of kids, when they realize, oh, I can do, you know, these things aren't necessarily in conflict if done right. I think that's that's brought a lot of hope to, to people. The other thing that really excites me is just some of the the leaders who God is lifting up, uh, whether it's something like someone like you know Lisa Fields with the, the Jude Three Project, Dr. Esau Macaulay, Dr. Uh, Charlie Dates. Uh, the list goes on and on, but he's really raising up some voices to speak into this moment uh, that can speak to different people in different concept from different contexts and different demographics. That's always uh, an encouragement to me. That's great. You're seeing this kind of fruitfulness within the Christian college campus scene. Um, and yet that's also the place that some of these issues are most contested. And, and students are at a point in their lives where they're asking these really big questions uh, when they also have deep, real friendships. And, and so I think of the LGBTQ uh, issue. You know, the church has this conflicted history. It's often painful relationship with the LGBTQ community. Um, you've referenced students and many students, they've kind of grown up 
in a society where um, they have friends. This is somewhat normalized experience of life um, in media raised up or in Hollywood and other places. So you've already made it clear you're, you're understanding this biblical tradition of marriage. Um, and yet college campus and other places, these are now within the context of real friendships and relationships. How do you approach this topic um, when you're thinking about your friends? And how do you approach this topic in the public square? Such a good question, uh, Dr. Kim. I, the first thing I say is we should all, I, I would hope that we all have friends who, you know, are experiencing things like that. Uh, we should, you know, these are the, these are the people that Jesus was near, right? We don't, we don't run away from those relationships. Um, and so the first thing I would say is we have to approach this honestly. Too often Christians don't want to admit when we've gotten something wrong as if we want the world to think that we're, we've always been right and you should listen to us because we've always gotten everything right. We haven't always gotten everything right. Uh, when, we've strayed in, when we've strayed from the gospel, when we strayed from biblical tenets, we've gotten things very wrong. And this is one of those issues that we've gotten wrong. Christians have to approach the LGBTQ issue with a broken heart, with a broken heart for, for the people who've left the church thinking nobody loved them, for our brothers um, in the 80s and early 90s who died alone and the church didn't really have a, a good news or, or a witness for them. Uh, if we don't enter that conversation with a broken heart, I don't think we have any business entering it. And I think we maybe deserve some of the pushback that we're getting. Uh, there needs to be a humility. There needs to be a lament. And for me, I know needed to be repentance in that regard. That's how you approach it. But what I would also tell a young person is where Christianity went wrong on that issue and many other issues wasn't because it was too biblical. It was because we weren't biblical enough. It wasn't because we upheld the Bible in the way that it should have been It's because we didn't and that we centered ourselves and that we walked away from the compassion that is very clearly articulated in the gospel. Don't make the same mistake on the, in, on the other side. One of the things that C.S. Lewis said that really opened up my eyes was that the enemy sends errors in pairs and he, use your, he uses your dislike of one error to send you into the, another error. Oftentimes, when we see something go wrong within the church, we don't correct the error. We make the opposite error. And I would tell people that you're right. The church has not been comp as compassionate as it should have been. The correction is to add compassion to that sexual ethic. It is not to go and, and make and be affirming. That's the opposite error. We should not make the opposite error. Wow, that is really powerful. Um, you know, another issue that is roiling uh, us, if not only in the moment, but for quite a while and for quite a while to come is the issue of abortion. It is front and center. Um, what do you hope would be known and said about Christians in this next season uh, when we are going to be discussing, dissecting, dissenting, disagreeing on the issue of abortion in our country? I would hope that it would be said that they loved women and children enough to do everything that they could to make abortion not seem like it was necessary to some to some women. 
Uh, we have to, we have to, sometimes you have to let an issue be complicated and not complicated to mean that the, the, the answer isn't clear, but that is not as easy as it may seem for some people. Uh, so when you're talking about women in crisis situations who may not have any support, um, it may seem easy for me and you to say, just don't do it, right? Just, just do the right thing. That is not an easy answer for a lot of women, especially in a culture where they tell you there's nothing wrong with having an abortion. If we can't have the compassion and uh, if we can't really sit and, and, and mourn and lament with that woman in that situation, we're not going to get to the right answer. It's more than just getting rid of Roe. It's how do I make sure that we put you in a position where you don't feel that that's, the, that's your best answer? And when Christians decide that we want to do that, along with looking at the law, along with making sure that, you know, we don't have a culture where this is incentivized or where this makes it seem like a good idea, then we're missing part of the conversation. If it's just about Roe and we think we accomplished something just because the law changed, that is an accomplishment. But Christianity is so much more than that. And so I would I would want us to and, and a lot of Christians are doing that now. So that's not to say they're not. But I would want even more Christians to maintain that pro-life stance, but make it a whole life stance where we're looking at all the things that we can do to put women and, and their children in better situations. Mm. Yeah, we talk here at the NAE of being consistently pro-life from womb to tomb. So I think we're saying the same thing in terms of moving from pro-life to whole life. Um, and this seems to play out in all sorts of ways and how we advocate for issues um, past the status of the fetus and the life within the womb to this kind of whole life or womb to tomb. Can, can you give us some ideas of what that commitment looks like, this whole life commitment? You already alluded to it in, in terms of care um, and the complicated nature, what it means to care for a woman who would believe that this is the, the really only the option, but draw, draw that out a little bit more for us. Yeah. So first of all, shout out to, to those who are running pregnancy centers. I, I think to continue that effort to, you know, to double down on that effort would be great. There's also a policy side of it. You would be a lot of people would be surprised to know how many women have to go back to work within a week or two weeks after they've had a, a baby. Is that really how we is that really the uh, standard that we want that we want for our country and for the for our neighbors? Uh, so I, I look at things like. Uh, paid family leave, which is something the Ann campaign has, has advocated for. I look at healthcare in general. We've allowed, and I think both parties have failed in this, but we've allowed our leaders not to come up with a really good answer when it comes to healthcare. Now we, we can come with different answers. We can think somebody can say universal, somebody can say there's other ways, just make it more accessible. I'm open to all, I'm open to those conversations, but we do need to get, talk about healthcare. We need to talk about uh, maternal mortality. Because a lot of the places with the harshest abortion laws have the highest rate of maternal mortality. Well, why is that? That's a health care issue. Um, um, child care, right? This doesn't necessarily mean that the government has to run all child care, but we should care if a woman thinks she actually has the means to have her child taken care of in a safe environment. That's a big deal. Uh, so those are just some of the policies and things we can look at and push our leaders to actually come up with solutions instead of just going back and forth on it and 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 fighting come together and, and let's work this out and make you know make this a a make this very complicated issue 
something where we're showing a little more compassion. Mm. Those are some um, policy issues that I like how you raise it, that there should be some clarity of what we want to achieve, but it's complicated in the process. And there may be different ways of coming up with a solution, but we do need to do something to equip families to be able to thrive um, so that they would see that um, life is not only worth preserving, uh, but there's hope for its flourishing. Um, and th that's really compelling. Um, the church, you've already um, mentioned this, uh, the, the shout outs to the crisis pregnancy centers. And many of those centers are either connected to churches or have been founded by churches or you know, people from uh, within the church. So that's a really tangible expression of the church um, in action. Are, are there other ways um, that you can see that the church could be in action, uh, whether or not policies get changed, like so independent of mm. the policy that dignifies and perhaps challenges the work of the church? Yeah. I mean, adoption is a big one of those two. And there's a lot of churches that are having those conversations. I think there could be more. And that's one of those places, like I said, we, we all have something to gain in different communities from one another. I think the African-American community, we do it a little bit differently, but I think we could do adoption more. Right. That's one of the places where I think there, there could be some improvement there. Uh, so that that's another big one. Um, but it's, it's, you know, another part of it is just coming together and really having the conversation. Right. Bringing people in who understand the topic that can talk about abortion in a way that connects with some of the younger women and men in your congregation. Uh, obviously talk about it from a biblical standpoint, but sometimes the messenger matters and, and how they relate and how they understand the current conversation matters. Uh, and so, so having those conversations and having them with diverse um, congregations in your city uh, is, an, is another way of going about it. Mm. No, that's great. Um, so through, through your work, we've covered a lot of complicated terrain. And yet, um, in a manner that feels so true to scripture, the holding together of love and truth, um, through your work with the Ant Campaign, you see where improvement is needed. You see where hope can spring forth. Um, so what gives you the hope as we draw this to a close? What, what gives you the hope for the future? I draw a lot of hope, and I, I was talking about this on, on my podcast this week. I draw a lot of hope from my elders, um, folks who were in that civil rights generation who look and see what the AND campaign is trying to do and, and say that they're proud and that uh, they appreciate what we're doing and just, just tell us to keep going. You know, when I look at folks like Fannie Lou Hamer and others, what they went through and, and, and the fact that they their faith allowed them to keep going, make some of the things that I'm going through seem, you know, uh, a, a little bit smaller. Uh, so that's inspiration uh, to me to, to keep going because people have done it before. And that's what we're called to do. Um, we know that, you know, the gospel demands that we're self-sacrificial. Um, the other thing I would say is, is, again, it's just the people that God is, is raising up, whereas folks like Alan Noble and the list goes on and on Jackie Hill Perry. God is raising up folks who are great communicators who are faithful and can and can really articulate that orthodoxy and orthopraxy in a way that I think reaches people that uh, need to hear the gospel. Our guest on today's conversation has been Justin Gibney. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Justin. 
National Association of Evangelicals is where we use Influence for Good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.